Hello and welcome to another edition of the Deacons Roundtable on WSFI uh, 88.5 FM in Antioch. We are here this this month with uh, Deacon Mike Alandi from St. Mary the Annunciation and Richard Hudzik, the Vicar of Deacons for the Archdiocese of Chicago. Our good friend Dave Egan uh, from Village of Victory Lakes cannot make it this month, but we are very fortunate this month to have the very renowned and respected professor from Sacred Heart Major, uh, Major Seminary in Detroit, uh, Professor Janet E. Smith with us. So welcome, Dr. Smith. Thank you for joining us. And Greg, you didn't identify us. It's good to be, good to be here. Thank you. <laughs> no one wants to know who I am. And I'm Greg Webster from St. Raphael the Archangel in uh, Old Mill Creek, Illinois. So what we'd like to talk about today, we're going to talk a little bit about Humanae Vitae, but before we, we begin, we'd like to begin with a prayer. So if Deacon Mike would lead us in one, we can get going. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, thank you for this past week, Thanksgiving week, where a lot of families were together, where love was abundant. And we ask you also to prepare us for the new liturgical year, the Advent season that's about to come upon us. And uh, we bring all this up to you uh, to glorify you, including today's show, as we pray glory be to the Father, and, and to, to the, the Son, and, and to, to the Holy Spirit, Spirit as, as it was, was in the beginning, beginning is, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And I think it'll be the Christmas season when the show airs, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we, we uh, wanted to talk this month, and not only is it the 50th anniversary of uh, Humana Vitae, and they, we had the canonization of Paul VI, um, I kind of I backed into this topic in, in, in a slightly different way, uh, in, you know, in Illinois and, and the rest of the nation, we had some some elections a couple weeks ago, and uh, for some reason, I left on some of the advertisements for candidates on the air, which I don't normally do, but it was an election night, and I noticed on this one candidate, one election here in Illinois, there was a woman candidate who was just blasting another woman candidate for her protection of life, for her being a pro-life candidate and I won't talk about the position or anything else mm. but it just hit me funny because I'm sitting there thinking here is a woman that's attacking another woman for a stance and and we just had had the the, the anniversary of Yumana Vitre and like well, where's the dignity of women have gone so we've gotten to the point where not only we, we we're talking the women in our society have gone so used to listening to to where we talk to society that that one woman is taking on the dignity of another woman and it just hit me saying well Paul the six was right we, we, we have some issues and and, and uh, to be honest with you that was what really spurred me this year to go read Humana Vitae and I read mm -hmm. the document and I thought what a beautiful I mean for all the things you hear about it what a beautiful beautiful uh, document just talking about marriage and love and the dignity of women and, and as, as a guy with three daughters, I was uh, very interested. And so I went out and I bought uh, Why Humana Vitae is Still Right. That, that is Dr. Smith's book. It was the follow-up to her Why Humana Vitae is Right, original book. And I have to say, Dr. Smith, I think this was just the greatest book. I thoroughly enjoyed reading this book. No, I'm happy you read it and happy you enjoyed it. Thank you. So I'm sure you, you know. I, I heard you on Al Cresto uh, a couple of weeks ago, and um, I'm sure mm -hmm. you're, you're very busy these days talking about Humana Vitae, aren't you? Well, it is the 50th year anniversary of Humana Vitae, and I just gave my last talk um, maybe a week and a half ago. Of and I think there might have been 40 sponsored 
uh, events on the 50th year anniversary of Humana Vitae this year. I um, spoke at 30 of them at least, and um, yeah, it was a very busy year. And, and now I'm very busy trying to figure out how to combat the sexual abuse problem in the church. Which, so which will happy from one, one controversial topic to another. <laughs> and we certainly want to talk about your work in that area. If we can focus on Humana Vitae for a little bit. Sure. Um, it's 50 years later. Obviously, in 1968, when it came out, it was came out as a, as a document. Could you tell us a little bit about how the, the commission that, that Paul VI used for studying this and how they expected a different conclusion than what Paul VI was going to do? Yes, the commission was originally set up by um, Pope John XXIII, and he had a very small commission, only six uh, priest theologians who were going to look into how the Church could teach its teaching in a world that believed it was threatened by overpopulation, and that was its mandate. Um, when he died, Pope Paul VI took over the commission and expanded it to over 66 members, uh, many of them experts in different areas, sociology, demography, some were family life directors, uh, and gave them the same mandate. How can the Church teach its teaching in the modern world? It was not a mandate to, to reconsider uh, whether this teaching was still to be taught, whether in fact it was still true. And um, it, But at some point in the progress of the Commission, I believe it was under the uh, encouragement of Father Bernard Herring, a very famous redemptorist theologian, uh, convinced the group that they should uh, change their mandate about to be whether the Church could and should change its teaching. That's not what they were told to do. So that's pretty irresponsible and bold and arrogant and also presumptuous to change your mandate that the Pope has given you. At any rate, there was one, and I love to say these words because it's so unusual, there was one wonderful American Jesuit named John Ford who was on the commission, and he went to tell Paul VI that he had a runaway commission on his hands, and he urged him to disband uh, the commission. But Paul VI didn't want to do that. He said, let them continue their deliberations. At the same time, he sent a number of footnotes over to Vatican II Council that was meeting at the same time. And these footnotes sort of reconfirmed uh, the Church's teaching on contraception and put those right in the documents of Vatican II. He also put 15 uh, new members on the commission who were archbishops and cardinals and made them the only voting members, hoping to control the commission. But as it turned out, nine of them voted the Church could and should change its teaching. Three said no and three abstained pretty remarkable um, situation. So the Commission finished its work, more or less, and sent their reports to Pope Paul VI in 1966. And in 1967, I believe again it was Father Herring, got impatient that the Holy Father had not yet made a statement and leaked those documents to the press, which is, it's an act of um, perfidy, infidelity. You, you take a, 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 a uh, pledge when you join those commissions that everything will remain silent, uh, quiet, secret. Uh, it's just to, you're just meant to advise the Holy Father. You're not meant to vote on uh, your vote does not change church, church doctrine. So uh, in 1967, it hit the media. Uh, Catholic newspapers in Paris, London, and the United States got copies of these documents and led the world to believe that the Church was about to change its teaching, because these members of the Commission had voted that way. Uh, an interesting little wrinkle in the whole story is that Kira Wojtyla, 
who eventually became John Paul II, was a member of that commission, though he never got to Rome to meet with it, but he did receive these documents, and he set up his own commission uh, to respond to the documents and wrote a very, very strong defense of the Church's teaching on contraception. That was also on the desk of Pope Paul VI. And Pope Paul VI uh, reiterated what the Church's teaching had always been. Um, he basically said he couldn't change it. It was God's law, not man's law. Uh, that didn't stop the world from being tremendously disappointed. By that time, contraception, the pill, had become widely uh, used. Uh, there was no, before 1960 or so, basically there was only the condom and the diaphragm, and these were used with mistresses and prostitutes, um, more so than, than your spouse. Uh, though it had become popular in, in Protestant marriages uh, since about 1930, when the Anglican Church for the first time broke from all Christian churches and said that contraception was morally permissible within marriage for serious reasons. But the Catholic Church reiterated what had always been its teaching, but by that time, uh, because of these this time period where there was kind of people were saying, well, is the Church going to change its teaching? Is it going to keep its teaching? Most Catholics started contracepting. And the theologians supported it. The top theologians in Rome um, opposed the Church's teaching, and very soon the professors in seminaries and universities uh, were all teaching that the Church would eventually change its teaching, and that Catholics did not need to abide by this teaching. There you go. I stopped for a minute. No, no it's, <laughs> but, you know, Professor, uh, that, that's, uh, that's, a remar- yeah. that's a remarkable, remarkable uh, history that is, mm-hmm. is, not, is not well known, uh, to say the least, I think. Um, the, the popular construct of this is that the, uh, the Pope willfully ignored the, the good and considered opinion of these, these people um, and went his own way uh, out of willfulness, perhaps. Uh, it just, but that's not, that's not at all the history that you That's would, not the case. And, and it's also the case that, that virtually anybody who reads those documents that were produced by the Special Commission agrees that the arguments really on both sides aren't very good, because they didn't go into this commission saying, okay, how are we going to make an argument for or against the Church's teaching? They went in with all sorts of sociological data about marriage and, and, and medicine and all sorts of things, and I mean, overpopulation is the world really overpopulated. What's going on? How will we teach this teaching? But all of a sudden, they they had a new task, and so they wrote these really pretty sloppily um, reasoned documents. So even, I mean, anybody looking at them would say, there's nothing here that could move the Holy Father to change the teaching, because the arguments are not good. They're basically, the fundamental line was, we can do it, therefore we should be allowed to do it, that this is an improvement, that mankind, you know, like we can, we have eyeglasses, we have hearing aids, which I love these things myself, um, Therefore, we could have contraception. And you say, wait a second, step back for a minute. I have eyeglasses because my eyes aren't functioning at their peak capacity. I need something to help me see. I have hearing aids because my ears are not functioning at their peak capacity. I need something to help me hear. I'm, in, I'm restoring a, a function, a natural function to its proper mode of functioning. Whereas contraception shuts down a natural functioning, and it actually treats human fertility, this great gift of human fertility, as though it were a defect, and especially a defect in the female. And we're treating a woman's body as if there's something wrong with it, that she can get pregnant when she has sexual intercourse. 
as to be saying, no, this is an incredible gift. And why would we want to mess with that? Why would we want to... Um, and we're more and more understanding what how horrible it is for a woman's health and her psychology, her self sense of self well being, her mental health, uh, her relationships. How damaging contraception are to all of those. We somehow think we can take a major part of our being, our sexuality, and damp, stamp it down, uh, make women basically neuter, and um, say that's a good thing. And you say, whoa. What are we thinking? It's interesting to me here in, in 2018, um, you still hear people talk about overpopulation, but it's it's never been seen. But I was also more interested, you know, I have daughters, and, and I always worry about them, but it's 2018, and people still aren't talking about how giving steroids through the pill is dangerous for women, and how it actually can deteriorate their fer- fer- uh, fertility when they want to bear children, you know, they, they, their, their, their sexual prime years get shortened. And uh, actually, with a lot of people who come off, we see a lot of twins in our society today. And there's, a, you know, there's several articles that say that's because women are dub- double ovulating when they come off the pill. So it's all these issues are, are coming up, but we don't hear this at, at all. Is that be, why is that, Dr. Smith? Well, it's just become so standard. People even people don't think about taking an aspirin, and they think a pill is just like an aspirin. But really, it's, many, many. There's much evidence that the, the culture is re-examining it. Not to the extent that we would like to, but there's a um, Ricky Lake of all people, talk show host, is raising money to to do a film about the dangers of the contraceptive pill. Uh, women, if you, if you go on blogs and look at feminist blogs, and they're beginning to realize that it really is foolish for women to put all of this um, poison, as you say, steroids. We don't give, if a young man comes to a doctor and says, I want steroids in order to build up my muscles, the doctor says, no, go to the gym, all right? Right. But if a girl says, I want, I want contraception so I can have sex with my boyfriend, he gives it to her. And those steroids are probably worse for her than the steroids are for the boys. But there's this, this view that women have to be sexually available. And if we don't allow them to have contraception, they're not going to be as sexually available as they would be otherwise. Not saying that maybe that lack of sexual availability is a very good thing. Um, before marriage, <laughs> it's a good thing that if girls and boys, men and women, young men and women weren't having sex before marriage, marriages would be so much stronger. All the evidence goes in that direction, and you'd have fewer sexually transmitted diseases and so many fewer unwanted pregnancies and abortions and everything. It just think like, what have we done to ourselves that we have? made, you know, just made it seemingly, seemingly sensible for young women and men to have sex before marriage. I I don't know if you've watched this movie, The Dating Project. No. Do you know that movie? No. You sit down and watch it with your three girls, all right? It's called The Dating Project. It's a magnificent movie, and it's it's actually um, basically a documentary of a... um, a professor in Boston who teaches a class and requires the students to go on a date, on a date. Almost everybody in that class, you can tell, has had sex, uh, probably many times with many partners, mostly when they're drunk. And But they've never been on a date, right? They've never been on a date. Oh, and sad. so she gives them this, this challenge to go on a date, that you have to call someone up. And you can't do this by text. You can't do it by a note. You have to call them up. You ask them out. 
you can you're going to ask them out. You can't spend more than ten dollars. You can't spend more than an hour with each other. And these kids are terrified. They say it's so much easier to have sex than to talk with someone. Oh my that, gosh, that's so painful. And these kids love it. They love the experience. It's like, whoa, I'm actually getting to know someone rather than just having sex. And that's what our culture has done. It's made people, they've given this false intimacy that um, you have sex with a person and you realize at the end of it that you don't know anything about this person. You don't know them any better. And sex should be the culmination of becoming deeply to know someone and, and wanting to make a lifetime commit with, with them. And then sharing something that, that, that um, really deepens a commitment that's already been made. But if there's no knowledge and there's no commitment, this act can't do that. It, it just is, it's an empty, empty, empty act. And uh, young people feel that. What did I just do? What did I give away? And but, contraception is what makes all of that possible. Dr. Smith, I, I was reviewing the uh, Vatican document, Gaudium et Spes, uh, the Church in the Modern mm-hmm. World. And to my surprise, uh, it, it dealt with fostering the nobility of marriage and family. It warned us about the things that are happening today. And to me, that's amazing. It's like this document is so prophetic. It already told us what would happen today if we take on the wrong path. Yeah, both Gaudi Metzbez and Himani Vite were very prophetic because the church, the church knows human nature, right? And it, and it knows... Um, what happens to us when we violate our human nature? Uh, people need certain things. They need, just like, a, I always like a tomato plant needs certain things. You look at a tomato plant and you know if you want to get good tomatoes, there's certain things you have to do. Provide it with a proper amount of water and the temperature and good soil and fertilizer and then you'll get good tomatoes. Well, human beings are, need certain things to thrive and all of us That's know right. that. We need love, loving parents. We need friends. We need some financial security. We need education. And we need marriage. Right. I mean, if you don't have those things, you know, it's like putting a tomato plant in a closet and being upset that it doesn't produce tomatoes. You, you give these young people contraception and tell them to go out and have sex and they're, they're, they're miserable and they don't have motivation and they're depressed and they can't find true love. And they say, what, what's going wrong here? <laughs> so we are up against, will tell you what's going wrong We're up against a break here on the Deacon's Roundtable here on WSFI 88.5 FM. We'll be back after the short break. This is Joe Scheidler in Chicago. Want to learn some Latin? Well, here are three simple words that say it all. Ora et labora. That's the motto of the Benedictines, and that means pray and work. Pray for the 4,000 babies who will be cruelly killed in legal abortions today in American cities alone. But also work to end abortion. Pray and work. How do you work? Well, come out to an abortion clinic near you. Pray there, but also talk to the women going in. Offer them help. If you want to know how, give us a call. We're the Pro-Life Action League in Chicago. Call us at 773-777-2900. That's 773-777-2900. Or contact us at prolifeaction.org. 
Hello, I'm Bill Wennington from the Church of St. Mary's and the Chicago Bulls. I, I believe Catholic Radio is important for all of us out there listening to help us through days when maybe our faith is being challenged by many different obstacles that are put in our way. And it's a chance to reflect and just think and hear stories from other people that maybe are going through the exact same issues that we are going through and how they have struggled and how they are getting through their problems today. WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio is committed to bringing quality Catholic programs to our local community. We only can do that with your financial support. Take a moment now to donate online at wsfiradio.org or mail your tax-deductible donation to WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, P.O. Box 885, Libertyville, Illinois 60048. That's WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, P.O. Box 885, Libertyville, Illinois 60048. Donations of any amount are greatly appreciated. We are back on the Deacon's Roundtable, and with us today we have uh, Janet E. Smith, Professor uh, Michael, Father Michael J. McGivney, Chair of Life Issues at Sacred Heart Major Seminary. And we're talking to her in his first two seconds uh, segments here about uh, Humanae Vitae and, and her book, Why Humanae Vitae is Right, and why her, and her book, Why Humanae Vitae is Still Right, a book that I think in 2018 every dad should give his daughter just to teach them What's the dignity that that society has is trying to deny them? And as we know in our church, dignity is all something that we're always called to promote. Um, Dr. Smith, you said you've been been on a lot of talks in 2018, and and we we're fast forwarding here the 50 years. The world obviously has changed significantly significantly from the 60s. Uh, Deacon Hudzik yes, and I is. were born in there, so it's moved on, and we've changed a little bit since the 60s. Um, how has the argument changed a little bit in terms of what you're hearing out on the road? I was born in the 50s, but that's okay. I was being nice to you. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, let me just say, uh, just I'm, I'm delighted that you urge everyone to buy it for their daughters, but buy it for their sons, too. All right? Uh, their sons should, uh, no man should allow a woman he loves to use contraception. And I got that line, actually, from a Knights of Columbus group at a co- co- Eastern Eastern Michigan University, no, Michigan State University. They had just started up and they invited me to give a talk. And they put all over campus a sign that says, no man who loves a woman would want her to use contraception. That's I awesome. shouldn't use the word let, but would want her to use it. It's awesome. And, and I knew a priest who would take the insert that's in a, in a, that comes with a contraceptive pill. I mean, it would be the same thing that you could get for um, any of the hormonal contraceptives and he if a man and woman were coming to him for marriage prep he would have the young man read the bad side effects that come with hormonal contraceptives they were like 33 and at the end of it he'd say would you use something like that would you do that to your body and he'd look at her you know he'd kind of be his eyes would be popping out of his head and she's looking at him wondering what he's going to say and and the priest said well if you wouldn't do it why would you let her do it why would you want her to do that to her body? You love her. You want to treasure that body. You don't want to let her put all that poison in it. So have the young men read it as well. It's very natural. The best, One of the very best things about the male is he wants to protect those he loves. He wants to protect women and children. And that's very much what God put in our hearts. The devil made men into predators, selfish predators. Okay, well, um, access your better nature. 
access that nature that God gave you that makes you want to be heroic and protect women and never, ever exploit a woman, any woman, but pers- primarily the woman that you love and you've committed yourself to. So get them for your sons as well and tell them, tell your sons why you think uh, a loving man would never let, uh, you know, want his wife ever to use any hormonal contraceptive or any barrier one either for that matter. So, so Dr. But Smith... your question was... Go ahead. Well, I, I was going to build on that, but, you know, I'm on my 50... In my 55th... or just finished my 55th tri- trip around the sun here, and I have to say that humana yeah. vitae and contraception and all this stuff, I didn't learn it from the church. In my lifetime, the church no. has been quiet. And I think our priests are yeah. quiet, and the confessional is quiet. Why is that? And are things different now at Sacred Heart Major Seminary? Oh, they're certainly different at Sacred Heart Major Seminary. I was brought here about 18 years ago by by, Arch, by now Archbishop Vigneron. He was then the rector of the seminary, and he told me he wanted to, Sacred Heart Major Seminary to, to be a Humani Vitae seminary and to make certain that it was taught in every course where it belonged. Um, and so we try very hard uh, to turn out men who are um, passionate about this issue. And many of them come in passionate about this issue because they've seen um, the destructiveness of, of um, you know, out-of-control sex in our culture, the degradation both for the women and the men, and unhappy relationships, broken hearts, uh, difficulty sustaining a, a marriage, which I think in many, many ways all of that can be uh, attributed to, to some great extent, um, not the only reason, but to a great extent to hormonal contraceptives and barrier methods as well. But um, so to some extent, it, it you know, now we have uh, 50 years of experience more of the use of contraceptives. We've now had the, you know, the Me Too phenomena. Um, where we found out how many celebrities and women in the workplace were being harassed by men for sexual favors. Now, I'm sure that has happened a lot in the history of mankind, but it happens even more um, when men think every woman is sexually available. That every, I think this is why we have so much date rape, that young men on college campuses uh, think that every woman has had sex and she's using a contraceptive, and she's done it for some other jerk before, why wouldn't she have sex with him? And then, of course, they, they what happens is largely the case is they start having, they start, they drink too much, and they start making out, and they move to a dark room with a flat surface, and they have sex. There's no relationship there at all. We now have these friends with benefits that young people have. You just find a sexual partner while you're in college, and there's not meant to be any commitment or even any emotional involvement, because that gets in the way of of <laughs> work and one's lifetime if there's the drama that comes with emotional relationships, which are difficult, demanding. And so I think now we have real life experience. Uh, we've, we've lived, a, we've had sort of like a, I hope it's an experiment that ends soon, um, experiment of what a culture looks like if it becomes a culture where contraception is widely used. We now know what it looks like, and it's, it's pretty darn nasty looking. So you can kind of appeal to people's um, experience. It, is it making you happier? Are you getting what you want? You know, do you feel good about yourself? Are you proud about yourself? Can you? Would you like your grandmother to know how you're living your life? Is it something you'd like your children to do? 
And he asked people to, you know, to ask these questions. There's an article I just read today, a 35-year-old woman who says, I am so miserable and lonely because my whole life I've just been trying to live a sort of wild and crazy life. She said, I've lived like in four or five different places because I've followed four or five different men and none of them worked out. And now I'm in, in, in a place that I don't have any friends and I, I don't even like my job and I'm getting older and I don't know what to do. And you just, your heart breaks. Your heart breaks. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to be, you know, foolishly nostalgic or, or naive, but my dad was a member of the great generation. Um, and, you know, he told me that when he was a boy, he said, you know, boy wanted to become a man. That's what you wanted to do. And they knew what it was to become a man. I mean, he, he worked when he was just a young boy, even like 10 years old in his, his father's grocery store, you know, putting items on a shelf. And he worked from the time he was could, could work. And that was a good thing, not a bad thing. It was like, great, I'm, I'm moving towards adulthood. I can work. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm becoming responsible. And then he went to, you know, became a soldier and came home and got an education. But the plan was, you get a job, you get some skills. And that means you're going to be able to marry the woman you want. You find a woman, you say, I'm a man with responsibility and I can hold a job and uh, I want you. I want to marry you. I have kids with you. I want to get a house. And I want to make a contribution to the community. And that's what men wanted to do, and that's what they did. And now men want to be boys for their whole life long. You know, just want to sit in front of their computers and live in their parents' basement. He said, wow, is this better? You know, and, and, and the women are, are desperate. I mean, where, where am I going to find a man to marry? Where am I going to find a good man? And should I have sex with him? If I don't have sex with him, I'm not going to get a man. But if I have a sex with him, he'll get tired of me fast and dump me for somebody else. And so you have this just this crazy world where adults aren't teaching young people good things. It's mostly, it's more our fault than it is theirs. They're the ones that are suffering more. So, you know, it's just like, now we can talk to people and say, you know, is this working for you? Are you getting what you want? Like this woman in the dating project, you're all hooking up and having sex. Are you happy? Do you feel like you're achieving real human intimacy? And they're sitting there looking here saying, no, no, I don't feel good about myself and I don't feel good about how I use somebody else. You know, well, then why not go on a date? You know, <laughs> so, Dr. Dr. Smith, the, the, um, in, in, in thinking about this, this conversation that uh, I knew we were going to have, uh, that we're recording right now, I, I, was, I was looking at the Humani Vitae and it's, it's marvelous vision that it has for for the human being um this one a life of empowerment and grace and fulfillment it's premised upon natural law there's there's reference in the document to uh, it's a not a utilitarian uh, ethic it's uh, speaks in terms of the principle of double effect here and there and i became discouraged thinking well in a world in in 2018 that you say natural law, they say, what are you talking about? There is no such thing. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. But, but maybe what you point out to me now is, is the, the beginning groundwork is, is you can't appeal, hey, hey, everybody, this is what natural law is. But rather, your point is, look at the reality that you have faced with. What you, mm-hmm. what you articulate with the, the present situation that I, I wonder if if that is the first if that's the opening gambit of the of the conversation is that are as you say 
is this the best that you want for yourself? Is is this good enough? Yes, that's good you want. Uh, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the, the, there's two there's two huge inroads. I mean, maybe a third is one I just just given. But young people, I can depend upon one thing when you talk to young people, which is that they hate divorce. They mm-hmm. hate it. They've if those have, especially those of course have grown up in divorce households. Um, believe me, there's a rare child in the face of this earth, even if the parents fought all the time, who are happy that their parents divorced. Mm-hmm. They feel lost. They feel unloved. It's quite miserable. Um, and even those on the periphery, uh, I mean, I, most, both of my sisters have been divorced, and it's affected me badly because I love my nieces and nephews, and I don't get to see them nearly as much as I'd like to. On holidays, they're off with, um, you know, the, the parent, the, their fathers. And so then you, so all these kids, their friends are gone. They're gone on holidays. They can't participate the same way in sporting events every way because they have to be gone with their father or their mother, whatever. Kids hate it. And if you tell them that living by the church's teaching on sexuality is shown by all sorts of data to be the best guarantee of a long-lasting marriage. They start to listen. Mm -hmm. They say, what? Yeah, you don't have sex before marriage, and you don't contracept, and those are two of the hugest predictors of a long-lasting marriage. And they go, oh man, tell me more. Mm All right, because they're 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 sick and tired of divorce. The second thing is, I mean, we've got this you know passion for preserving the environment, and you just ask people two things. I mean, you said, look, we don't want to put chemicals into our water supply, into our food, into our air. We want organic food. We want clean water. We want pure air. So why are people putting all women putting all these chemicals? synthetic hormones, steroids, as you say, into our bodies, day after day, month after month, year after year, to stop a perfectly natural way of functioning. We have the sense that nature is good. We don't want to go against nature. And you say, well, the body has a nature. So it's gonna necessarily have bad consequences, not to mention the consequence it has on the environment. I mean, most of the steroids that are put in a woman's body are not biodegradable. And so you have whole fish populations dying out all over the place because they're changing the gender of the fish by putting uh, bad chemicals on it in them. And you think of all the waste products that come with contraceptives. Just think of all the condoms and plastics and plastics that contraceptives are, are packaged in. Just think of all that. And none of that's necessary. Natural family planning is uh, can absolutely uh, help up a couple you know, plan their family size, control their family size. And it has none of these bad consequences. In fact, it's, 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 it's good for marriage. Much It's hard. I mean, people say, well, it's hard. Yes, abstaining is hard. I said, oh, believe me, I understand. I said, you know, dieting is hard and, <laughs> and exercising is hard and budgeting is hard. And, and for almost anything that's good on the face of the earth is hard. Um, but, they, but the benefits of dieting and exercising and budgeting are immense. And, you know, if you didn't budget, and even if it doesn't mean, like, I, I'm going to be very clear on how much I spend on everything and much, but if you don't sort of live within your income, your life is going to turn out to be miserable. You may not count your calories, but if you ate everything you wanted to eat, you know, you'd be 600 pounds of ugliness, you know? And if <laughs> if you, you know, it, it's true. And if we, so if we don't do these, and if you never exercise, I mean, you'll just be, you know, just this little weak little blob. And you say, that's, 
you know, you don't have to exercise every day and have a real program, but you got to move. Okay. You know, and, and if you just did what you wanted to do, I mean, I'd have a hard time getting out of bed in the morning. I, I, I love being in bed. I love reading in bed. I could stay all day long, have a great time, you know, but it's, it's not going to get me what I want in this world. So, yes, NFP is hard, but all the signs are that the hardness of it brings with it all sorts of benefits. Um, precisely, almost precisely because it's hard. Couples don't depend only upon sex for their intimacy and their, their closeness. They have to spend a certain period of month where they are, they're not going to have sex. So what do they do? One hopes that they go for walks and they talk and they watch movies and they just enjoy each other's company. Right? That's a good thing. Um, and, and, and that's and that's a and that's a positive vision to to offer people. I mean, mm-hmm. what a concept talking to each other. Well, also yeah. natural family planning what has been used yeah. to battle infertility. I mean, it's a very successful way to to help couples have children. And I think one of the the, the interesting things that when you read some of the books, like like Doctor Smith's book, is that we we intuitively know these figures, but you know it's pretty clear. You know, there is no overpopulation that we're dealing with but more importantly in this contraceptive culture and we have a government who's trying to do contraceptives all over the place there's great chapters about what we're doing to Africa but the number of abortions has steadily increased with this culture so the argument that there's contraception to reduce abortions just is not substantiated by the data nor by common sense nor by common sense I mean what was 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 major for me when I was when I when I was you know took a real look at the church's teaching on contraception was I was doing sidewalk counseling outside of abortion clinic an abortion clinic I see all these young women in going in for an abortion I'm thinking oh my gosh these are beautiful young women and they're they're going in possibly pregnant and they're coming out not pregnant that means a baby's been killed in the meantime I think what the heck brought them to this abortion clinic. And then your thought comes to me, they were having sex with men with whom they had no intention of having a child. And I'm saying, why are they having sex with a man with whom they have no intention of having a child? Well, because they're using contraception. I said, this is what, and I felt like I was sort of at the, you know, at the bottom of a river that had a strong current and these babies were going to be killed soon if I didn't, if I didn't reach in and, and do something to save them. And I thought, but I want to figure out who's throwing these babies in at the top of the the, <laughs> the river. Who's throwing them in? I said, contraception's throwing them in because it makes people think it makes sense to have sex when you have no intention of having um, a child. And so that's when it really, the connection between contraception and, and abortion became, became clear to me. When I was in college, I had a friend who was having sex with this really dashing young man. You know, I was a little bit jealous. And I say, but what happens if you get pregnant? And she said to me, I don't know him well enough to ask. And it just, it threw me for a loop. It just threw me for a loop. You can have sex with someone, but you can't ask him the question, what happens if I get pregnant? That's threatening to a relationship. All right. That should should be the first question you ask. All right. Well, we're coming up on our next break here with the Deacon's Roundtable here on WSFI 88.5 FM. We'll be right back. This is 
Wes Riccio from the Holy Family Catholic Bookstore. If you have a child, grandchild, or godchild being baptized, receiving their first Holy Communion, or being confirmed, remember that Holy Family has the area's largest selection of gifts, accessories, and supplies to make their special day more memorable. For baptism, we have cradle medals, baby Bibles, wall crosses, and nightlights. We have beautiful baptismal gowns and accessories, as well as invitations and cards. If you have a First Holy Communion in your family, we have a wide variety of mass books and gift sets, rosaries and medals. We have exquisite veils for the girls and ties for the boys, along with all of the necessary party supplies. Our suggestions for new confirmants include personal-sized Bibles, prayer books, and other spiritual readings that can follow them through their lifetime. And don't forget the godparents and sponsors. We have gifts and cards for them as well. The Holy Family Catholic Bookstore is at 9249 Old Green Bay Road, Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin. More information is available on Facebook. Want an example of a false sense of security? How about relying on the life insurance you get through work to pay for all of your final expenses? Do you have plans to retire someday? Or do you plan on working for that company for the rest of your life? The fact is, you may lose your life insurance when you leave a company. I'm Matt Tomlinson from Catholic Financial Life, and I invite you to share your hopes and dreams with me. To discuss your options for protecting your family, call me at 847-548-MATT. That's 847-548-6288. Products and services not available in all states. And welcome back to the Deacon's Roundtable for our third and final uh, segment of the, this, uh, this show today. We have uh, uh, Dr. Janet Smith with us, as well as uh, the revered August uh, Deacon Greg Webster, hailing from uh, Northern Illinois. And who are you? Uh, and I am <laughs> Richard Hudzik, and I am uh, privileged to be uh, a deacon for the Archdiocese of Chicago. And Dr. Smith... Um, so many things to say. One, I, I, I can't let you go without just saying it, uh, not face-to-face, but uh, live, person-to-person. Uh, -person. I can recollect listening to your uh, cassette tape probably 15 years ago, <laughs> Contraception, Why Not? And it was, I, I remember it uh, still, as I say, and the, the uh, my takeaway from that is uh, the the amazing surprise that a husband and wife need to talk to each other uh, as we we're just alluding before the break they need to talk to each other about about fertility um, again uh, it's it's ironic that uh, we, we need we need to find tools to have us talk to each other but um, it's it, it just it's something I've carried with me for for these many years uh, so thank you for that, uh, and I think uh, you continue on the same work. Uh, the question I want to ask is: um, you, you're not you're not painting a dire picture. The uh, you know God's grace is with us uh, always. What what hope do we have? Uh, Greg and I are privileged to periodically uh, preach. We uh, we teach. Uh, what do we say or do to further this uh, this gospel of, of life? Uh, well, <laughs> I, honestly, I think those who um, have children, and I would say, especially if you have a large family, um, on a good day, 
on a good day when you feel like you really love your kids and they're adorable and you love your husband, so I'm speaking to the women and the men, go to a college campus and just walk around the college campus. And young people at that age really, really love babies. And they love seeing a, a, a man and a woman in love with each other. And they love seeing a family. And it's something, as I said, most of them might not have had, had an intact family of a mother and a father living with each other. And they see this and ignite what is natural in their hearts is something that they want. And I think we have to talk a whole lot more about these things. Um, you know, we tend to say, oh, I don't want to be preachy and I don't want to this. Well, you know, I'm, I'm getting up there in years. I'm definitely grandmother age. And uh, you know, I'm not married and don't have children, but I love the grandmother age. Um, and I see my, my my siblings and my friends getting this age and grandfathers. You've got, you got a lot of creds with kids just because you're still here and you've lived. And talk to them and talk to them about, especially grandparents. I mean, they can say things to their, cho- their grandchildren that their parents never could. Mm-hmm. And explain to them why that the, the world that they live in is crazy and it's not their fault. And how the, the world is trying to, you know, push them to do things that are... are are, are not healthy for them. Give them another vision. It's like a lot of it has to do with talking and not being afraid to sound preachy. Mm-hmm. Don't be judgmental, but preaching is not such a bad thing. I remember, honestly, when I was 30, that's a long time ago, but I lived in the, the generation that said you can't trust anybody over 30. And I thought that but when I hit 30, my students would be no more wanting to come around and just sit and talk. And I found that they wanted to more and more because adults wouldn't talk to them. Adults were also make up your own mind about things. You know, figure it out yourself. And, um, you know, we'd made mistakes and we survived and you'll do it too. And I always look at those people and I say, you, you sort of did survive, but you sh- sort of didn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you made a lot of bad judgments when you're still suffering from them. Try to help your kids not make those same bad decisions. So, so that's my, my view is when talk. I'm, when I'm talking to people, Dr. Smith, um, we're going to hear that while I'm following my conscience. And or or we hear yeah. that uh, this is a sensum fidelium issue, which can you talk a little bit about that in our time remaining? Because I think you 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 have some wonderful contributions in those areas. Yeah, why is why well, is it conscience just what I want to do? Yeah, um, yeah. People think their conscience I, 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 is their own opinion. Uh, their, their opinion is their conscience, and I have a right to my opinion. You have a right to yours. And they need to go to the catechism, they need to go to Gautamitzpez, and they need to read what the, the conscience is. And that's not what it is. It's a beautiful concept. I mean, young people should be reading the, the catechism. I mean, one of my friends during Lent will sit down before dinner and read a small part of the, part of the catechism, uh, and that becomes the dinner table uh, point of conversation. And it really is a marvelous thing. It brings up all sorts of good questions and opportunities to talk about things, but read the stuff on conscience. And obviously, they, they, it's so different. Again, the conscience is this inner sanctuary where God speaks to us, right? God speaks to us. Now, to some extent, He already speaks to us again through our nature. We all want friendship. We, we, we want kindness. We want productivity. We want all these things. We're made that way. So we know these are good things. But we, and conscience, you know, it comes up, should I have sex with my boyfriend or not, right? That's a good question. Well, okay, what are you going to be guided by? Your feelings, all right? Your peer pressure, pressure from the boyfriend, your fears of being lonely, your fears of this. What's what's driving you? Can you really say that, that when you're consulting your conscience, the question is, what does God think 
about this action. It's not what I think about it, whether I would feel guilty or not guilty, whether I think it makes sense. The real question is, what does God think? God wants me now, to be happy. Also, God wants me to be happy. Pardon? God wants me to be happy. God wants, wants me to be happy, right. But happy, of course, in God's sense, doesn't mean doing whatever you want. Oh, okay. And that's what you have to say. That God never said, just do whatever you want. And so you say, well, how do I know what God wants? How do I know what happiness is? Again, go to the catechism. It's all right there. What's, what's happiness? Happiness is the action that's going to, that are going to get you eternal, in accord with your nature, are going to um, get you eternal salvation. All right, well, let's see. I think I'll be happy if I have sex, but is that going to get me eternal salvation? Ooh, let's think about that. And I often tell young people, I mean, I know people are, you know, almost anything, having sex before marriage, wanting to have a baby through in vitro fertilization, whatever. I say, why don't you go spend a little bit of time in front of the, the Holy Sacrament and just sit there and ask Jesus, what, what, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to have sex with my boyfriend? Ask Jesus. And, you know, you might say all sorts of things. You might say, well, read the Catechism. You might say... You know, read the Bible, uh, but the chances are he's going to say some way. He's going to say no. <laughs> That's what he's going to say. And we have to learn how to pray. We have to learn how to really pray. How to empty ourselves out of our passions and our fears and peer pressure, and be able to say, "I want to get to that private place inside of me where I can talk to Jesus." I'm not. I'm not consulting what do I think and how do I feel. But I want to ask God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, I want to say, what do you want from me? And sometimes they're going to say, you know, I set up a church that teaches you things. Go to the church. Find out what the church thinks. Go to the catechism. Other times you'll hear a, a resounding voice say, oh, I know. You'll say to yourself, I know, I know, I know sex outside of marriage is wrong. I already know that. I was trying to, I was trying to convince myself it wasn't. Right, so that's 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 consulting your conscience is not it's trying to find out what God thinks about this action, not how you feel about it. And then your second question was the census fidelium, yes, which is the sense of the faithful, um, which is a doctrine that goes back to some extent, most perfectly maybe to John Henry Newman, and it, it follows the sense that if you're really a deep, following, devout, practicing Catholic. Um, you know how to think with a faith and think with a church. And so this isn't for just anybody, all right? This isn't a person who's been baptized Catholic and doesn't darken the door of the church, or someone goes when they feel comfortable and they got some time on a Sunday morning just kicking around my Zolota Mass. Uh, this is for someone who's dedicating their life to Jesus, really dedicating their lives, and saying when they, their feet hit the floor in the morning, they're saying, how can I, how can I serve my beloved Jesus today? And I'm going to live my day, like day all day long with Jesus, and he's going to be helping me make my decisions. That's the person. And so Newman used it actually to try to figure out a Marian doctrine. Um, was Mary immaculately conceived or not? And he said, well, you can consult the faithful, because the faithful love Mary. They pray to her all day long. They go on pilgrimages. They play the rosary. They do all these Marian devotions. And so ask the faithful. Now, these aren't just, again, anybody who has you know, Catholic on their baptismal certificate, but people who are doing all those things. He says it's not it's not in and of itself determinative of the truth. But boy, if all these Catholics who are again making pilgrimages to Mary saying rosaries doing novenas, if they think it's appropriate to say that Mary was conceived without sin, that's a huge sign. Right? So some people say, well there's so many Catholics who are contracepting that's obviously a sign that uh, there's not a problem between being a, a Catholic and accepting contraception, so the Church must be wrong. 
you might go, oh my gosh, there's only about 8% of Catholics, honestly, that are living the fullness of the faith, meaning that they go to Mass every Sunday, they meet the Holy Days of Obligation, they go to confession at least once a year, all right, and they try to live by the dictates of the faith. Those people definitely accept the Church's teaching on contraception. They do. That's all, all the studies show. But it's the people who go don't go to Mass when they're on, on vacation, may not go to confession for several years, don't ever read the Bible, don't ever do any other devotions or anything. And somehow we're going to take their view on this as being a sign of what's compatible with those who are trying to live their, their life in accord with God's plan. I don't think so. Now, does the uh, you mentioned uh, John Henry Newman? And I I saw a headline. Uh, there's a second miracle out for uh, for for Blessed John. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, now he has this notion of development of doctrine. Is is he in the, right? Is that is that the census fidelium? Is that are we in the same ballpark, or am Not, I making category error? Uh, no, well, it, it could be a part. It could be a part of it, but. It, 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 it's, it's, it's another wonderful concept that he, he developed, um, which is, yes, the, the, the teachings are going to develop. He said, much like a tree develops. I mean, you, you have an acorn and it becomes an oak tree, and an oak tree looks very different from an acorn. But even especially now with modern science, we know everything that that oak tree becomes is there in that acorn, and you can't get an acorn... I mean, you can't get an oak tree out of a tomato seed. It's not going to happen. A tomato seed produces a tomato plant. They look very different, but they're an organic growth, and it's organic growth. And so he says development of doctrine means, and we have developed our, say, our understanding of sexuality and contraception enormously through John Paul II in particular. Um, You know, his theology of the body is, in a sense, revolutionary. I mean, there were seeds of it in the past. You can find it in the mystical thinkers, but he's developed it in a way that brings it to kind of a full flowering. So the seeds are there in the church teaching. The seeds, he finds it all in Scripture. He says the church's teaching on contraception is all in Scripture. And you say, what do you mean? There's no line that says thou shalt not contracept. So, oh, no, no, no. But he says right from the very beginning, and then all the way through, he says, what is Genesis? The Genesis is, you know, that men and women are made for each other. They're made to make each other whole, to make a complete self-gift of each other. Leave your parents and, you know, join to become one, to, to become one in flesh, they unite for the rest of their life, and they be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So you read this in the first three chapters of Genesis, you go like, it doesn't start, quite sound like contraception is compatible with that picture. Oh, you say, well, that's a myth, and it's early in the history of mankind, and... and, and John Paul II says, no, it, it's, it's something that speaks to human nature. That's who human beings are. And so he's greatly developed the teaching, but John, John Henry Newman said you can never reverse a teaching. You couldn't, you couldn't say that you, can, you, that you can overturn a teaching. Develop it means you understand it more deeply than you've ever understood it before. Um, they, we've always known contraception was wrong, but we didn't know it was going to lead to abortion and unwed pregnancy and divorce and all those things. Um, but now that we've lived it, we now sure as heck know it. We predicted it. But that's different from having lived through it and knowing it as an absolute fact. A prophecy and a fact are two different things. We, we prophesied it, the Church prophesied it, and now we know the fact. So we know everything more deeply than we did before. Well, D- Dr. Smith, we have delight have just been delightful talking to you in this last hour, so we thank you for coming on. 
Um, one of the some of the resources that I'd like to, to point our listeners to is uh, your website at janetesmith.org. Um, all your books and your videos are, are mentioned on that website, and also they have some uh, great videos. Uh, your books are available at Amazon.com or any good Catholic bookstore like the one up at Mundelein Seminary. Um, Marytown. Marytown, yeah, all those, all those particular good ones. So we did not get a chance to talk about your work with the bishops. I was hoping maybe you could come mm-hmm. back and talk with us in 2019, maybe perhaps after the uh, the Vatican I'm, uh, I'm meeting sure and, and talk with us. Would that would that oh, be? Yes. Uh, that'd be great. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I'd love to do that. Thank you. So, well, thank you for your time. We thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, t- we have been talking to Professor Janet E. Smith, the uh, Father McGivney Chair of Life Issues at, at Sacred Heart Major Seminary. We've been talking about Humana Vitae. Um, do us all a favor. Read it. Understand it. Most importantly, let's live it. God bless you, everybody. Would you like to leave us with a prayer, Richard? Right. We pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy, Holy Mary, Mary, Mother, Mother of God, God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. death. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Dr. Smith. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you. 